Clon Chief Operating Officer Eric Newton and Community Manager Kenny Rowe join this session to provide some additional background to Tlon and Urbit. Eric Newton begins by explaining the relationship between the Tlon Corporation and the Urbit project. We also discuss the reason behind the valuation of the address space, business opportunities and plans for the launch of Urbit OS1. Then, Kenny describes the cultural reach of the Urbit aesthetic and how he found himself pulled into the project from his prior project, Maker. In particular, the notion of the Kelvin versioning system and the way it evolves towards stability as opposed to complexity, and the power of unique terminology to avoid false cognates. Kenny elaborates on the community onboarding strategy of Urbit and its suitability for the collaboration needs of DAOs and front-end requirements of smart contracts. First up though, Eric Newton. Uh, my name is Eric Newton. I'm the COO at Tlon. I'm a lawyer by training. And uh, at Tlon, I do legal, finance, people, and a bit of marketing as well. Wonderful. So today, what I really wanted to um, pick your brain about was basically where the value of the network address space comes from. And I mean, we can differentiate value and price if you'd like as well. So, so when people want to know, well, what is Urbit address space useful for? I always end up having to go into analogies in the real world. And the outline of what those analogies are that I use often are the DNS system, you know, the IPv4 and IPv6 systems, um, ISPs, because stars and galaxies act as ISPs in a sense, CDNs, um, software distribution hubs, because stars route uh, software to planets, and so they uh, they are perfect hubs for uh, routing all kinds of software and charging for the service. Um, also, probably vetting that software before delivering it. Stars and galaxies, I think, are also going to be very useful for payments and transactions. You know, you can imagine a star could run uh, Bitcoin or uh, Lightning or Ethereum nodes. You could also imagine a star running a zero X layer uh, or providing an order book for planets within its ecosystem. Payments are native, are, are built in natively to the Urbit protocol. So it's very easy for stars to spin that up and, and build all kinds of business models around it. And then of course, we always compare Urbit address space to land. Um, and you know the reason that we say Urbit address space is like land is because it's, it's, it's so extensible. You can really build anything that you want there. And uh, people are just starting to figure out how to homestead that territory. Urbit ID, which is the component that's being traded in the open market, is designed to be the authentication system for Urbit OS. So you use your Urbit ID to log in to your virtual computer. And your Urbit ID is a human readable name. Uh, it has a sigil or a little icon that's programmatically generated that's associated with that name. And it's yours permanently. You own it cryptographically. Uh, it can accrue reputation on the network, and um, so there's an incentive for good behavior. The great thing about Urbit ID is that while it's designed to be used primarily with Urbit OS, it's vastly extensible, and it can be used for authentication generally. And so that sort of brings us to this question of uh, what are some of these things that can be built on it? And 
galaxies and stars, again, should be thought of as primarily network infrastructure. Uh, they deliver software updates to their children. So every uh, planet is sponsored by a, a star and every star is sponsored by a galaxy. And so uh, software updates come from the next level node above. And uh, peer discovery, meaning if you want to find an identity on the network, you've got to go through this um, sponsorship tree to find where these people exist and then talk to them directly. Network infrastructure activities like packet routing um, represent a cost to those nodes. And so they also represent a possible uh, revenue stream. We think that eventually that that activity is going to be metered and charged for. And so that represents a possible cash flow model, a possible business model for people that run stars and galaxies. We've often compared stars uh, and galaxies to the IPv4 and IPv system, IPv6 systems and, you know, in DNS. IP addresses were originally granted in gigantic blocks referred to as slash eights. And those gigantic blocks now are, uh, you know, they're owned by MIT and AT&T and other large entities, government entities. And they're so valuable that they're not being traded anymore. And individual IP addresses are routed or are signed dynamically and uh, most people don't hold on to a given IP address for very long, which is why they can't be used for uh, identity or for reputation accrual. But they are actually being sold. That's sort of the interesting thing about IP addresses is that they're being sold on the open market for about 20 bucks each. Slash eights aren't being sold at all because they're too valuable. <clears throat> so we've often compared galaxies, stars, and planets to um, IPv4. And in that, you know, in, in that scheme, you would say that planets are like individual IP addresses and galaxies are like slash eights. Um, and so that gives you a sense of sort of like an analog in the existing world, uh, in the default internet world to what we've created here. Uh, but then what can you use those for? Well, you can, you know, you can route packets. So that's analogous to an ISP. Uh, stars are also uh, useful as shelling points. Uh, because they have some authority on the network by dint of being uh, these high-level network nodes. And so you can imagine communities forming around stars, uh, or you can imagine stars acting as certain kinds of um, service providers on the network. Uh, they currently are already acting as hosts for people who want to run their planet in the cloud as opposed to running it locally. The star will sell you a planet, host your planet for you, route your packets, provide peer discovery all for one monthly or annual fee. And this is because of their privileged space. There's someone you've got to go to anyway. So they're just well positioned to offer you a range of services rather than just one and bundle all those together. That's exactly right. I mean, these these services could certainly be separated out, but bundling them makes a whole lot of sense. And we're starting to see that manifest already. So there's our scarcity. We've got scarcity, utility. What about network effect? There are different, what they refer to as network laws that you know various thinkers have tried to come up with ways to value networks. And there's essentially three that get thrown around. There's Sarnoff's law, Metcalf's law, and Reed's law. Sarnoff's law uh, it was sort of the first one, and it's it states that a network increases in value proportional to its size. 
And Sarnoff's Law is often these days thought to understate the value of a network because it doesn't take into account um, the many interactions that nodes can have with one another. It's pretty safe, isn't it? A network, a network increases in value proportionate to its size. It, yeah, it, I mean, I think it was really useful in early telecom networks, right? But then when the internet came around, it was just a completely different thing. Um, nodes could talk to a very, essentially an infinite number of other nodes. And so then Metcalf, Metcalf came along and said, well, okay, actually the value of a network is the square of the number of users. It's number of users squared. Um, and when you graph that, it just it's it's beautiful. It goes straight up. Uh, then along comes Reed's law and says, "Well, actually, actually, no. A value a network is valued. Um, it increases with the number of groups that can be built on the network. And when you try to graph this, it's two to the nth, where n is the number of groups. And you know, the good news, I, of course, I was teeing this up. You should have seen it coming. Is that Urbit is a network of networks." And so it's best described by Reed's Law. And the reason we say that is that Urbit is really built for groups. The whole structure, the whole paradigm of um, Urbit and certainly interfaces that we've built recently are all about groups interacting with each other. And in Urbit, um, in group interaction is kind of unique. As I said earlier, connections are peer-to-peer. Um, that means that privacy is very high. And interestingly, it means discoverability is really low. And yet, customization is basically limitless, and the number of possible groups are essentially unbounded. Um, and that discoverability piece is kind of critical here. What it means is that you can have individual groups that can customize their experience, design their own software for their own engagement, fairly easily, I might add, that are completely walled off from other groups. That means that there's no reason for groups to go to war with each other, in a sense. Groups can kind of develop in the direction that they want to without having to uh, get involved with broader politics. I think that provides a more natural experience for human beings. And I also think it, it creates a more fertile ecosystem for groups to develop. And then Urbit is just the substrate. So it's a network of these networks. This recalls exactly what um, exactly what Anthony was saying about the departure of the digital tool from our experience of physical tools and bringing human experience in the real world, in the physical world, into the digital world. I think this is something that's been missing, and this is an ethos that comes up repeatedly when I talk to people about Urban. Yeah, it's something that we all take to heart and we all express it in a slightly different way. The the way I think about it is, you know, humans just can't thrive if they can't control their tools. If they don't understand their tools, if they can't um, redesign their tools and manipulate them, you know, and, and we just can't do that in the digital world right now. Um, Galen, our CEO, Galen's analogy for this is great. We're all living in a hotel. You know, you just like, you can't do much with your hotel room, really. And, and, you know, maybe it feels nice when you first, when you first land there, it's kind of curated and it's, and it's um, kind of clean, but it gets really old really fast. It's funny. I must've caught Galen on a bad day because <laughs> he used the, the analogy of a prison, not a hotel. <laughs> I mean, that's certainly how it feels, right? I mean, I think the... It, 
apropos of the fact that we're all right now quarantined because of this coronavirus issue, um, a hotel can really quickly feel like a prison. A small apartment can really quickly feel like a prison. And the way that you can break out of that conceptual prison is being able to manipulate your environment. And, and that's what Urbit makes available for all of these individual communities, which makes it feel like a natural home for them. They can build the community however they want. And if you're one of these communities, you can go be discoverable, discoverable to the broader universe, or you can stay private. It's really up to you. And that, that reality, that flexibility is uh, at the community level and also exists all the way down to the individual ID level. So if you're a planet, um, uh, you can stay completely pseudonymous if you want to. Nobody can ever associate that planet with the person who owns it. Or you can dox yourself intentionally like I have done. You know, my planet name is Patnus Rigtine, and I'm perfectly happy for the world to know that Eric Newton is also Patnus Rigtine. And because I'm perfectly comfortable interacting that way, and everybody has that choice um, on the network. And I think that flexibility is exceedingly important for comfort, for people to feel natural, for people to, wait, to want to engage in a way um, that feels safe. And that safety and that natural uh, way of engaging is what causes people to come onto the network, build communities, and then, since we're talking about network laws, uh, each of these people who comes on and, and engages in a community and feels natural then goes and starts their, or at least has the option to then go and start their own community and invite new people onto the network who then in turn start their own communities and invite their own friends onto the network. And that's why we're in a Reed's Law paradigm as opposed to a Sarnoff's or a Metcalf's Law paradigm. That's interesting. And I've never heard any, I haven't heard anyone put it that way. So that's first, I mean, I suppose I haven't heard anyone just um, provide such a succinct exposition on network, network effects either, to be honest. Well, there's one more distinction that I like to think about in the network world that if you'll, if you'll. Uh, Happy to indulge. If you'll indulge me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one more distinction is this notion of uh, a platform network. So a lot of networks refer to themselves as platforms, but they aren't actually, for these reasons we've been discussing, they're not really extensible. You know, Facebook likes to say it's a platform, but you can't manipulate your experience on Facebook. You certainly can't ship code to it. Um, but Urbit is actually a platform. You can build just about anything that you want to on top of Urbit. And taking that even a step farther... Um, your node is useful even if it's not part of a network. You can use your Urbit OS, for example, to store data or to create content or to just write your book that you've been imagining writing for 50 years um, and keep it completely private. You don't have to engage with other people um, in any kind of social function with urban, but you can, if you want to. And that is another degree of flexibility that most networks lack. Most networks are valuable only because of the network function. Um, with Urbit, it's, it has a network function. It's a platform that is vastly extensible and it can be used as an individual virtual computer absent from its networking function if you want to. And that means that it's just, uh, that it's, again, that it's um, extraordinarily useful for many different kinds of purposes and that it's very, very extensible. 
So moving to Tlon and Tlon's relationship with Herbert, and I may as well, as long as we don't have a representative of Herbert.live, I suppose Herbert.live's relationship with Herbert, um, and how you guys intend to make money. Can you expound on those subjects a little bit? Herbert, of course, is an open source software project, and it's been uh, in development for many years. Many, many contributors have uh, contributed code and Tlon happens to be the primary contributor to, to, to Urbit, but by no means is it the only one. So uh, Urbit is an open source project that's MIT licensed. You can fork it. It's available to inspect the code, um, you know, and I encourage you to go take a look. Tlon is a for-profit company um, and that happens to own a whole bunch of Urbit address space and wants to make that address space as valuable as possible in order to be able to make some money. And so Urbit's purpose right now is really to develop uh, the kernel, to develop the interface, to really uh, make Urbit as stable and useful as possible uh, so that, you know, again, the value of this Urbit address space that we hold goes up. Um, eventually, Tlon will shift to providing services on the network like hosting uh, or some of these other infrastructure-related services that we've talked about earlier. Um, and Urbit.live is another private for-profit company that is, um, I don't know if we can call them venture-backed, but they've certainly completed a, um, uh, an angel round. Uh, and they right now are primarily selling address space and they're moving into, I believe, hosting services and they have some other services in mind as well. Uh, so applications actually, now that we're here, so when I load up my Urbit, I've got chat and then the ability to publish links um, to my groups. And I've been invited to a couple of groups. I've got the Dalton Collective that uh, that Kenny has founded. Yeah. I've got the General Urbit community and the Urbit NZ community. And I've had a few – I've been chatting away with um, with Mark and the rest of the gang in Urbit NZ. But this is all I'm currently using Urbit for. Uh, are there plans for more applications? And what kind of applications do you anticipate coming out in the near future? Yeah. So just to summarize what's live right now, so actually today and the day that we're recording this interview, uh, we're launching OS1, which is our first complete interface. And what OS1 does is it stitches together uh, functionality that's already existed and makes it a little bit prettier, a little bit smoother. So basically that's chat, which you say that you've been mostly engaged with, and that's what most people use it for at this point. There's also uh, a notebook, which is basically long-form text. It's something like a blog. Um, it, it's a little bit more extensible than a blog. You can have other people chat on it, and you can have other people uh, contribute to it. But essentially, long-form text. And then link sharing. And link sharing is Reddit-style link sharing. You know, post a link, and then people can talk about it. And we bring those together in this, you know, I, I think very attractive, very clean interface from the perspective that groups really want to do these three things together. They want to talk to each other, they want to post some information, and they probably want to share links to the broader web. Um, but it really is very, very stripped down. It's these are, you know, these are some very simple, this is very simple functionality as you um, as you allude. So what's coming next? Bitcoin and ETH payments and wallets um, native to the system. We've talked about a, something like a um, task manager. But the most interesting thing about OS2, which is coming out in the middle of this year, 
is hosting. And that's the biggest uh, improvement that's coming out in OS 2. And then OS 3, which is slated to come out at the end of the year, uh, so end of 2020, beginning of 2021, is all of that with a few more features, but the major primary upgrade to OS 3 is that the entire system will be security audited at that point. Um, right now, Urbit is fun, but it's not provably secure. So I wouldn't suggest that anybody put their private keys in the system. Um, but once we've got the security audit and um, once we've plugged whatever holes arise in the process of getting that audit, it will be secure enough to store your keys. But that's not an entire answer to your question. I, mean, I know you want to know about features, but the most important thing about features is that individual contributors and the community can build those. It doesn't have to just be us. Once we've sort of nailed these foundational concepts, these foundational elements that have to be there, then anybody can build whatever features that they want. It's because it's a platform, right? That's the that's the whole idea. And a lot of the time, I mean, I know something I've been hammering on uh, about, you know, product, product, tell me what the product is, tell me what the use case is. And the reality is that this is an extensible platform and it's up to the individual to define the use case. We can see, you know, we can identify um, areas where a solution like Urbit, a platform like Urbit can be valuable, but it's up to the market of ideas to come up with that answer, right? To come up with the... Um, yeah. The, the, I mean, I think that's where the really exciting applications arise. But, you know, I don't also don't want to bury the lead. I mean, just to tell you the things we're working on, we're working on document creation, of course. Um, we're working on task management. Um, we're working on more robust communication systems. Um, we're working on everything that a group of people would need and want to either work together or interact together. And now we hear from community manager, Kenny Rowe. How did you find yourself at Urbit? Well, uh, so back in, let's say, 2016, 2015, I was working for uh, MakerDAO at the time. I was helping getting that that project started. And and at the time, one of the, the lead developers for that, uh, his name was Nikolai Mushigian. And Nikolai had discovered Urbit and was really inspired. And if anybody who's looked at the, the MakerDAO smart contracts, they'll notice that the uh, the variable names and some of the concepts, the way they're named is very unique in particular. Uh, and that was all inspired from the Urbit aesthetic, so to speak. And so back then, Urbit was sort of a very uh, new project, just sort of getting off the ground sort of publicly, even though it had been in development for some period of time. And uh, Nikolai had introduced it to you know some of the folks that were around at Maker, and so we'd had uh, started a little chat that we could talk about these sort of concepts uh, about sort of just computing and, and the way it's done, sort of how it relates to crypto, and it, it really caught my attention at the same time. And so I've been aware of the project for the last you know four or five years or so, um, but only recently have I become so involved in it that it's kind of taken over my my full time work and uh, sort of the thing that I'm really most passionate about in the sort of general Web three space right now. Now, this is interesting because what you're saying is that Urbit actually had this cultural reach beyond just its local community. And this is a theme that comes up repeatedly is this aesthetic attraction of the Urbit project. It's, uh, it's just, I, I make the comment because it's, it's interesting to hear this is something that has been echoing through these interviews. 
Yeah, and that's that's you can clearly see that in in some of the aesthetics and meaning some of the examples that I would give like uh, in Urbit are the core of the computer that is your Urbit that's called Knock and Knock is designed to count down inversion numbers which is no, is is sort of strange normally you count up as you in, you add features and you do increasing uh, complexity with your software it'll have higher and higher version numbers but what happens is when you when you go down it's sort of like uh, kelvin temperature systems where there's like an absolute zero what happens is you become more and more stable and more and more reliable so that that works really well for the core of something like a core of uh, an operating system or a core of a virtual machine. So that's called Kelvin versioning system. And that also relates to what you might want to do with smart contracts, right? So if you have a set of business logic that's really firm, you can build a lot of stuff on top of it. So that was uh, an inspiration to to what we were doing at Maker at the time and writing smart contracts that pieces them at least were meant to really... Um, possibly freeze in, in, in their functionality. That didn't actually happen in Maker, but in, in Urbit, that, that certainly is. And in, a, in another another way that the, that aesthetic has sort of perpetuated itself is that a lot of times when you're building something new, a lot of the, the terms and a lot of the concepts are similar to things that exist in, in the existing world, in the existing frameworks, but they're not exactly the same. So if you call something by the same name that you might have in, let's say, the internet, it can be confusing because the slight differences sort of get lost. So in the Urbit example, uh, we we named things sort of this galactic metaphor. We have uh, galaxies and stars and planets, but those have rough uh, equivalents in the internet space where we have DNS root nodes, and then we have internet service providers, and then like routers in individual homes. So we could have called them those same things, but then the differences of those would sort of get lost. And if you give them new names then you have to do a bit more work and a bit more effort to figure out what it is that those differences are. But, you know, it comes with other things too, like why did you name all these things the way that you did? And it can be confusing. But as Arabic grows and as it becomes more mainstream, those terms will probably evolve uh, over time as well. And become colloquialized, is that a word? Yeah, either the, the words that, that we use now will become commonplace, in which case they'll have new meanings, or they'll have um, new names that other people give them. So one thing I've noticed is that when anybody actually tries to coin a phrase, it usually actually doesn't work. It just has to something, it's something that grows sort of organically, even though we do have these references them for these things. Now, you know, as time goes on, the more people use it, depending, we'll, we'll see what we call these things. So what does a community manager do? Well, in Urbit, we've we've designed it so that it's it's actually meant for groups. It's meant for communities. It's sort of designed with this idea in mind from the beginning. Whereas, you know, more in the internet space, we do have social networks and we do have these more community these community focused applications. But you're still sort of a user. You're a user, and you have a user interface, and it's very singular. So. In, in Urbit, it's it's meant for communities. And what does that mean? It means that there are certain things that are built into it that allow communities to work together, to collaborate, to do what they need to do on the internet in a way that's kind of owned or at least managed by the community itself. So my job is to find those people who, who want to be um, doing things on the internet and they want to sort of have control over that. They don't want to be just using Facebook and Google and all these other separate systems. They want to come together. They want to. They want to be in control of of their own sort of dynamic 
interactions. And so my job is to help them find that space, find uh, that that area where they can work together the best. And uh, and yeah, yeah. So and and because onboarding is is hard, and so I'm here to to really help them do that. So you go out and find people who need Urbit. Yes, uh, and not necessarily people, but groups. Um, so in Ethereum, where I where I used to do a lot of my work, we had this notion of a decentralized autonomous organization, right? And so, what does that actually mean? Well, there's there's not a lot of tools specifically for that. There might be some you know smart contracts that a lot of these DAOs use, but that's mostly for managing assets and maybe voting or some other thing. But what do you use to chat? What do you use to collaborate on a document? What do you use to share links together? That kind of thing. Well, Urbit is perfect for that. And not only that, but if you're if you're a a DAO on Ethereum and, and working on Ethereum smart contracts, and you want to put a front end on those smart contracts, well, now are you going to put them on a web host where they're just going to be sort of in one place? And if that web host goes down or web server goes down, then you don't have a front end. There's a lot of things that Urbit solves for these decentralized groups that they're not normally going to get with other um, services. And so my job is to find those groups because they already have something they're trying to achieve, bring them in, and then figure out what other things need to get built so that they can continue to do what they want to do sort of on their own terms. Can you give a example of one of these groups? Yeah. So Dorg is a, is a really great example. Um, and Dorg is also associated with another group called DXDAO. And this, these, these are two separate groups, but Dorg is a smaller group of about you know, 15 individuals or so. And what they do is they create software for other groups, uh, mostly in the form of smart contracts, but you know, some other things. So they're developers. They're sort of loosely grouped together. They have some smart contracts that they use to manage themselves, but they could really use a platform or a, um, it's, not, it's not exactly a platform. It, they could use an environment that they can do all of this collaboration together that they're in control of, that they own. And that's what Urbit is. What about the way the Tlon organization itself uses Urbit? Can you tell us a bit about how that works for you guys? Yeah. So, you know, when we're building this, we, we, we think about how could this be used to, how can these be used internally to do what we want to do, which is to say, build Urbit. And so we're dogfooding, so to speak, the same tools and processes that we think that other, other organizations might want to use. So internally, what we're doing right now that everybody's working remotely. And so there's, we need to check in on a regular basis. We need to document what we've been doing. We need to have some sort of real-time communication um, to, to collaborate on ideas and to work things out. And so what we've done is we've created a group inside of Urbit, which is a permissioned group. Only the folks that are in the Talon organization have access to it. And within that, everyone has permissions to create their own notebook, which is like a blog where they can write down what it is they did yesterday, what are they going to do today, and where they're blocked. It's a very standard sort of stand-up meeting for a startup to have. And then people can comment on it and that sort of thing. So we can get further resolution on any blockers or anything like that. There's a few chat groups as well so that we can have, you know, from informal hangouts at lunchtime to more general uh, postings about um, all the issues that we're dealing with in the current release OS1, for example. And then we have a collection of links that we find interesting for people either working on similar projects or have similar aesthetics or similar um, ethos that we can draw upon in order to bring more inspiration in, into Urbit itself. And those are the, the ways that we're using it currently to, to do the, the work of building it. And then as more things become available and possible, we're going to build out some core sort of collaborative style apps 
you know, for ourselves and for others. And then eventually people, other people will start building their own apps and, and making them possibly interconnect. And we'll see how the, how the future sort of unfolds, but we're absolutely using it now to get our work done. What's next then for Urbit and for the Urbit expansion plan? We have a roadmap. Um, we're currently alpha testing what we call uh, OS one, and then that'll that'll be coming out within the next week or so in a more you know fixed fixed form. And in, in OS one, you can, like I said, you can chat, you can share links together, and you can publish um, basic text publishing uh, and manage the group. So who's who has access to things like that? In the, in the next versions in OS two, the the idea there is to expand the set of features and functionality. So things like calendaring or in-comment style um, upvoting, downvoting for for notebooks or for for links and that that sort of thing. Things that would be sort of obvious in collaboration and communication. We'll continue to add those out, and you can kind of think about it similar to the, when the iPhone was released. Um, you know, it had a set of core applications that Apple sort of curated and managed that their their core applications. And as time goes on, those applications become more interconnected and they become more useful and other people come in and, and add applications to it. So right now we're kind of in a Nokia version of a phone. You know, it's, it has a good battery life. It does a few things pretty well. And and then the next version is going to have a touchscreen and, you know, a bunch more apps and lots of calculators and things like that. And then as we move on, that, that uh, whole development cycle will become less and less about Talon specifically and more about what the rest of the community wants and how it wants to build software to either manage its work together or, you know, even all the way out into the rest of the world with Internet of Things and connected devices. So it, it's it's really a, a broad spectrum of what it can do because it's a, it's a network computer. Anything a network computer can do, uh, Urbit can do. But yeah, that's where we're going to focus on some core set of applications and building up that community and, and then uh, allowing other people to build what they want. This is interesting because you know, we talk about Urbit, and it's often easy to conflate Tlon and the Urbit project. But really, Tlon is obviously the primary developer of Urbit or the primary development force. But there was a longstanding open source community. Uh, Urbit is an open source project. And when you say that you're adding these functionalities, really, Urbit itself on the deep levels is not being expanded or added to, it's becoming more and more static and stable. And these functionalities that Talon is adding are really applications or higher level or higher level applications um, that you're adding to the platform that users can take advantage of. Um, you know, it feels like when we talk about this that function is being added to the Urban operating system, whereas really, am I right in saying that just applications are being added or created by Talon for Urbit? Yeah, that's that's pretty close. I mean. There's still some underlying uh, core infrastructure being built in the sense of the lowest level code, not necessarily uh, knock, which is like the very lowest part of that. That's that's like at four degrees below above absolute zero in its version. But when you when you take a step up, um, when you get into the, the operating system and the networking stack, those are pretty well baked. I mean, not fully, but pretty well. And then above that is is where you find those the user applications, and that's where a lot of the features and functionality is being built uh, right now. Especially with the user interface, that is also completely something that can be changed and modified. And we we have this idea that Urbit should be um, have different levels of participation and modification, something similar to what you might see with your house. So 
you know, in your house, you didn't build it probably, right? But you can certainly rearrange the furniture. You can choose your own art that you want to play, hang on your walls, your own paint colors, and you can customize it to be sort of, you know, it feels cozy to you. And then at another level, maybe let's say you want to um, get some Ikea furniture, you can put it together. You have some basic skills on how to make things. Maybe you get more advanced and you can actually make some of your own furniture. And then the next level above that is you're actually building structures. You're, you're putting up drywall, that kind of thing. And we anticipate uh, having tools and functionality for all levels of, of sort of deployment of uh, customization. But it, I think it's really important to know, to, to emphasize kind of the lower level, because that's where most people are going to live. And, and Urbit should be customizable to the point where it feels like yours. It's something you made, even if you didn't like, you know, put the put the walls up and hammer in all the nails, that kind of thing. It's funny because uh, Galen made almost exactly, uh, you know, offered almost exactly the same metaphor. Yeah, that's where I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's interesting, you know, because when I think about operating systems, going back to something Ted said, you know, way back when, I mean, probably two months ago, given that this is our last interview for this podcast series, he mentioned that when people think of an operating system, it, kind of the layman thinks of it as the interface, but the more technical person thinks, you know, understands that there's this hardware IO interface, and then we can follow this thread all the way down into Urbit's, uh, Urbit's design for this abstract IO interface. And, uh, and it's interesting that all of these, that the entire stack is on display and available for customization, depending on the depth of access that a user or the depth of customization that a user would like to uh, would like to have. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not even to the point of a user. You can think of it also back to our earlier conversation about groups. You know, I don't know about you, but like in my friend circles, like there's always one or two people that like know how to set up a router or like know how to you know do something on the computer. And everybody sort of asks that one person for help. Well, you could think of communities as something similar, like if you have 50 or 100 people, there's probably a few of them in there that are sort of like the system administrators that can do that, create those things for everybody. And that's also really interesting, too, because right now what we see in the software development world is you have to create an application for scale, and it has to work for millions of people or, or something like that in order to be a viable business. In Urbit, that's not the case. You know, you need a, a, some some experience and some gumption to get in there and get some things done. But you can make something that's useful for small numbers of people, and it'll work. And it's something that they can own. I suppose the final question is: If people sound like they, if people like what they hear, how can they get involved with Urbit, and how can they get their hands on an Urbit instance that they can use? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a lot of different ways you can sort of get involved. Um, so on the technical side, open source. So if you go to GitHub, Urbit, that's where the repositories are for all the different projects, but mostly Urbit forward slash Urbit is, is the main repository for Urbit. There's a, a Hoon school, which is the programming language that is used to to create most of these applications. And that on our website, if you, you know do a search for Hoon school, you can sign up and then you can you know, dive in immediately. And once you have some skills there, you can maybe do a pull request. Um, there's also a grants program. So grants.urbit.org has a bunch of different things that people can work on. And in that case, the, they, the, uh, they pay out in Urbit address space. 
So those are some technical ways you can get involved on uh, how do you how do you get one of these things? So right now you don't you don't need to purchase a, a, a name, which is like a planet. You can boot uh, uh, what we, we call them comments, which are sort of anonymous identities. In that case, you go to our website and there's um, an install page where you can download the binaries and you just start it up and it will it will mine. It will actually mine a, a, a one of these things for you. It takes about an, an hour or so on a, on a typical laptop. And the reason why we need it to do that is so that we don't have um, denial of service attacks. But once you have one of these um, identities, these comets, you can interact with the, the live network as it is now. And if at some point you want to purchase uh, an individual identity, then they're usually about $10 or so, $10, $20. And there's two primary ways you can do that. You can go to urbit.live, which is uh, another group that is actually working on Urbit's sort of core infrastructure as well. And then they're also available on OpenSea if you do a search for for Urbit or um, Urbit ID is, is what they're called on those two platforms. And that's that's the way you can uh, you can get in there. And if you're interested in building something on Urbit, meaning like a, a group of people or uh, an organization of some kind, then you could always find me um, either in Urbit at uh, SickDevPillnup or on Twitter at Kenny Rowe. And we can we can work on getting your community into Urbit and getting it running. So. We've got myself and one other person whose whose job it is to just make sure that those communities have the support they need to to be successful. And what about the launch of OS One? Can you give us a bit of uh, a bit of a primer on that? Yeah, so that's coming uh, next week. And you know, for those who are listening, it's hard to know what time, but it uh, it'll be uh, it'll, it's live now, and you can go and use it and sort of test it out. It's got a few little rough edges, but for the most part, it works pretty well. Um, and we can do over-the-air updates to these things, so it's not like you have to reinstall something every time there's a new update. For the most part, so that's come. That'll be that'll be live and in like a full beta version, probably within the next ten days or twenty days or so, depending on uh, the final touches that need to get put onto it. And that will have all of those um, apps that we've sort of discussed um, for for groups and for individuals to play around with. And that wraps up this walkthrough of the Urbit project. Look out for Urbit events in San Francisco and around the world as the project and world affairs evolve. At the time of this podcast's release, OS1 will be out of beta and the Tlon hosting tool will be live. So check that out at urbit.org forward slash install. The Urbit blog is a great place for project updates and can be found at urbit.org, as well as a Discord channel. Urbit.live has a great blog as well, and a Telegram channel too, and a market for planets and stars. I hope you've enjoyed this Urbit journey as much as I have. Spending time with the Urbit team was an incredible experience, full of candor and insight. I've been your host, Arthur Falls.